This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Oh, and this is one that's really gotten people riled up over the last 24 hours. So just about this time yesterday, the United States government had announced that they were going to have a plan that would allow their citizens to take advantage of cheaper drug prices in Canada. Now, if you've been following some of the news out of the U.S. recently about this, there have been these caravans of people. In fact, even presidential candidate Bernie Sanders got on one of these buses and drove up across the border to help Americans buy cheaper drugs in Canada. And off and on, you've kind of heard stories about this over the years, right? Right now, though, the the, the situation is kind of critical for diabetics because insulin has become so expensive in the U.S. and it is much, much cheaper uh, for people in Canada. We, of course, think that, well, that's already pretty expensive for us, but for them, it is just unbelievably cheaper. So they're getting on these buses and organizing these caravans and coming across the border and buying it. Except now what the United States government did, because under pressure here, because one of the things that Donald Trump did promise during the election campaign was to bring lower drug prices and take on those pharmaceutical companies. That hasn't happened in the U.S. So now this agreement that they came to yesterday is to allow U.S. states like Florida, because they've been pushing for this pretty hard, to negotiate and buy drugs from Canada with licenses from the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. So essentially allowing these states to try to bulk buy medication from us. Boy, did this ever get people going. And I understand it. The first time I heard this, I was furious because I thought, wait just a minute. You're not willing to do the hard work of going toe-to-toe with your pharmaceutical companies. You are too afraid to cut your political da- donations and tell them to stop ripping off Americans. And now what, you're just going to come here and take our drugs? What about our people who need those? What about our prices? What about our supply? Lots of people got worked up about this. So we want to know today for our hot question of the day. You know, the U.S. is attempting to do this, to legalize the purchase of Canadian prescription drugs by customers in America. It's prompting a lot of fears that this would really exacerbate the shortages that we have here sometimes. So we're asking you, should Canada block Americans from accessing lower cost prescription drugs from our country? Do you say, yes, protect our pills, That's ours. Those are ours. Or do you say, no, we should help out our neighbors with what we have. We're talking about individual people here, you know, not companies. These people need help. Therefore, we should help them. Where do you come down on that? Now, you can go to Simisara980 to cast your vote. You can also go to at CKNW and do the same. Uh, We would love to hear from you on this. And as well, feel free to call our buzz line. That number is 604-331-BUZZ-331-2899. And I can tell you, uh, yesterday when we talked about this, we spoke to a reporter who specializes in covering the pharmaceutical industry uh, at Politico. And she was explaining to us that there are certain drugs that won't be allowed. And there are still a lot of hoops that they'd have to jump through. uh, But this does, you know, this obviously didn't cause any concern for them about how Canada would feel. Uh, so that once we had that conversation, boy, oh boy, were people pretty upset about that. I got emails like this one from Larry who said, Simi, if the U.S. wants our prescription medications, why don't we sell it to them with a 100% tariff? If they start buying too much, then just increase the tariff to 150%. He says the windfall can be put back into our medical system. President Trump, he said, would do the same. So I'm sure he would be fine with this. Larry says, true. I mean, we could theoretically do that and and slap huge tariffs on that and say, no, those are Canadian drugs. We have to look after ourselves first because you're right. America would probably do that for themselves, right? How do you come down on this? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. And yes, go online, check out our hot question of the day today. Let us know what you think. 
I already put in a bet earlier with our producer, Alan, about what the number was going to be on this hot question of the day, like what the results are going to be. So I'll let you know if I'm right or wrong about that later on in the show when we can get a more of a representative idea of how people are feeling about that. But we will be having that discussion. I have to admit, I'm pretty puzzled by this next story. Recycle BC says it wants to raise the alarm over what people are putting in their recycling. No, not, you know, plastic in the paper section or broken glass or something like that. No, not those kinds of contaminants. This is something very different. We're talking about explosives and hazardous material. Yeah, that's what's being put into recycling. Apparently it's happening more and more. They've just held a press conference about it. Let's chat with Dave Lefebvre, the Recycle BC Director of Public Affairs. Hello, Dave. Hey, Sydney. How are you doing? I am good. Thank you. So this, this seems like a very bizarre message. What's been going on? So what we're doing today is we're really trying to sound the alarm with the residents in British Columbia in regards to hazardous materials being placed in the residential recycling stream. So the packaging and paper products, the blue bins that most people have. Uh, and I'm actually at a recycling facility right now. I'm at the facility that accepts the majority of Vancouver's recycling. And what we're finding is that over the last five years, the incidence of hazardous materials in the recycling stream has actually increased 47%. We're at a point now when, when we look specifically at the loads of the containers that we collect, two-thirds of those loads have the presence of hazardous materials in them. And it's a real concern for us, especially when we think about the people who are working on the back end, the people who are processing these materials. There are people that are residents that are putting propane tanks, they're putting butane tanks, they're putting sharps like needles, uh, bear spray, any number of materials that can be jostled, that can be run over. Uh, It's a real danger. It can cause explosions and can cause fires. So what is the way around? Like, I know this is the education aspect of this, but do recycling companies, when they're picking this material up, can they see that in the bin? Can they leave it behind, slap a sticker on that and say, we're not taking this? It's a great question. And the reality is that it depends. So if you place it in a blue box, recycling moves very quickly. If somebody who is collecting that blue box happens to see that there's a hazardous material in it, they'll leave that blue box behind and they'll leave a sticker on it. And I apologize if you can hear some of those materials being dumped right now. Um, If they don't, though, they'll grab that blue box and throw it in the back of the truck. Then the truck will jostle all of that material. It'll eventually dump it onto a concrete floor. A big front loader will possibly run over those materials or push them up into a pile. There are a number of different instances where something like a propane tank can explode and cause really significant issues. It can cause injuries. And we've seen across North America just last year, there was a 26% increase in the number of fires. And we saw three deaths and 13 injuries. So it's a very serious problem. All right. So then run through the list here for me then, Dave. What, What kind of hazardous materials are we talking about? So, and I will run through a few examples, but I really want people to think before they recycle because the examples that I give is not an all-encompassing list, but certainly obvious ones are propane tanks, whether it's camping tanks or whether it's real barbecue propane tanks. Yes, we see those in our recycling system sometimes. Um, We also see batteries. So a lot of people probably don't realize that all batteries are a challenge in the recycling system. Uh, in the paper and packaging recycling system, I should say. There are ways to recycle batteries, and you can go to the Recycling Council of BC, and they will help you figure out where to recycle those things. One of the things that's really challenging right now is lithium-ion batteries. So the batteries that you find in a laptop or in a cell phone, those can explode, and because we're dealing with so much paper, it can ignite the paper and cause very significant fires. We actually had an instance earlier this year where they found 58 rounds of live ammunition in the recycling system. 58 rounds of live ammunition that what people were cleaning out their desk and just threw that in the recycling? Lord only knows. Yeah. (laughs) That is unreal. So what happens with something like that? Like, do you have to stop everything and, and deal with that situation? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the biggest challenge is if you don't see it. If they do see it, they pick it out. But the reality is that it moves fast. This is equipment that weighs a lot. It jostles a lot of these materials. And and when you think about the volume of material that we collect, a lot of these hazardous materials are hiding in there and they're not able to find them. That's why we're talking to residents today and trying to impress upon them the importance of not putting those things in their recycling. We actually had an incident earlier this month in Surrey 
where one of our facilities, a loader ran over a can of bear spray. And Ooh. that bear spray exploded and sent a number of people to hospital. It's very serious. Yeah, that sounds like, was that kind of the reason why, the, that, that prompt the press conference then, where you thought, okay, enough is enough? You know, the truth is, we've been planning this for a little while. That happened after we started planning this. We knew that there was a challenge here. We've actually had seven fires at receiving facilities in the last uh, six months here in British Columbia alone. Now, all of these facilities have trained teams that jump into action. If they see some materials that are smoldering, they will go and they will extinguish them as quickly as possible. But sometimes these fires get out of control. There was a facility that burned down in northern British Columbia earlier this year. They don't know the cause of it, but it gives you an example of how dangerous it can be. You have a lot of paper, a lot of oxygen. And there's a huge opportunity for something bad to happen. All right. So then you're asking people to be aware. But if that doesn't work, then, Dave, what is the next step here? Like, can you find people for putting this stuff in there? I mean, these are dangerous items. I mean, I think the biggest challenge here is that we're dealing with so much material. It's very difficult to trace back where this material comes from. Certainly, if people are putting them in their blue box and we notice that it's in the blue box, we will tag that blue box and we will collect those materials. But really, we just need people to use their common sense. At the end of the day, you would not take a propane tank and throw it on the ground. You would not necessarily take uh, a pack of needles and just throw them wherever you wanted to. We're asking people to use their common sense if they think it's potentially hazardous to not uh, use uh, those materials in the recycling stream. And I'm sure you can hear how loud it is here. That gives you an indication of just how heavy the equipment is, how much material is being moved. And that is some crazy stuff. All right, we'll put the word out as well. Dave, thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for covering this, Simi. Uh, no problem. That's Dave LeFave, the Recycle BC Director of Public Affairs. Can you believe those stories? Like, I had no idea. People putting batteries in their recycling. People Who puts a propane tank in recycling? Come on, people. Who does that? Who puts their camping little butane uh, little tanks things into recycling? Come on. That doesn't belong in recycling. It's like Dave said, use your common sense. It doesn't belong there. Lithium ion batteries. And the person who put 58 rounds of live ammunition in recycling, give your head a shake, people. What is the matter with you? All right, let's talk more about this prescription drug situation that we find ourselves in. The Trump administration said yesterday that it is looking to set up a system, and they say they're going to set this up, that will make it legal for Americans to buy prescription drugs from Canada at a lower price than in the United States. The Food and Drug Administration currently permits U.S. residents to bring medication for personal use across the border, but not more than a three-month supply. And they've been doing that. They've been driving up in caravans and buses, and they have been doing that. We've seen that on the news. Meanwhile, here in Canada, there's a lot of concern that if they actually allow states to do this, bulk buy drugs from Canada, it could really put pressure on our supply. Now, Health Minister Adrian Dix was asked by our global news reporter Richard Zussman this morning if he felt that this was a problem. And here is how Minister Dix replied. If there was a substantial effort to, um, say, come to Canada and take Canadian insulin and bring it back to the United States, it isn't individuals doing it, but rather an organized effort, it would have an impact on insulin supplies in Canada, and it could have an impact on the prices of non-patented medicines, right? Because those selling them in the United States at higher prices might take action here. So I would say that I, I think it's important not to overreact. I think this is an idea that has been... Uh, floated uh, by the President of the United States. Um, My view, and uh, and far be it for me to give advice to the American government, is that if they want to take measures to um, address healthcare costs in the United States, they have uh, all the authority they need to do that within the United States, and that that would be the most uh, prudent approach. I don't think, as a practical matter, what's being proposed makes sense for them or for us. Right, but it also helps them avoid having to deal with their own pharmaceutical companies and go toe-to-toe with them, which is what, right, the general public thinks that they should do. So can they do this? Well, Paul Grutendorst is a University of Toronto associate professor who researches the economics of the pharmaceutical industry, and he joins us now uh, to talk about this story. Thank you so much for being here. A pleasure to be here. What did you think when you heard about this yesterday? Um... 
Well, I wasn't sure if it was a uh, one of President Trump's tweets, one of his uh, stream of consciousness policy decisions, or if it was a well thought out policy proposal. But it, either way, it, it sounds like it's um, a non-starter. There is absolutely no way that this policy can uh, take off. It, it's simply doomed to failure. And why is that? Well, because um, the multinational drug companies, the Pfizer's, the GlaxoSmithKline's, the Novartis's of the world, uh, they sell their products in many different markets at different prices. Um, so what the U.S. wants to do is um, is take the relatively low-priced drugs from Canada and resell them in the States. Well, that's going to cannibalize the um, relatively lucrative U.S. sales. And uh, they will, the drug companies will take measures to prevent this from happening. Why do they even look north, though? Like, why take our drugs? Why not try to fix this problem themselves? Well, I think the... The problem is partially political, it's partially ideological, um, it's really hard to say. I, I don't, you have to be a political scientist to answer that question correctly, but I think it's to do with the fact that there is a distaste for price regulation in the states, and the same kind of price regulation we have in Canada. They just don't like it ideologically, so they don't want to implement that kind of a solution. Um, there are many different payers involved. Um, obviously, the public drug plans in the states, the Medicare Part D, which covers seniors, and the Medicaid programs, which cover um, um, low-income individuals. I mean, they're just part of the mix. There's a large private uh, segment, so maybe the government doesn't feel it should intrude on the private sector. Um, uh, there's always um, all-important lobbying um, <laughs> by... Yeah. Members of Congress, um, I can imagine these are all factors that affect, that would make it easier, as Minister Dix just pointed out, to look externally for a solution to the problem as opposed to taking the, doing the work required right. to reform their system domestically. But this isn't like a, an idea that they just kind of, that is like a rumor. This was actually announced by the Health and Human Services Secretary yesterday. Doesn't that make it seem like it's a more serious effort than we've seen before? It has that appearance, doesn't it? It, yeah. it, it seems like they, uh, <laughs> they're they not getting around this time. Um, yeah, but the question is, how do they actually propose to implement this? How will they physically get their hands on our domestic drug supply? What are they going to do um, exactly? They don't, the supplies of medicines um, by, you know, the Pfizer's, the GSK's, the major drug companies, um, it's not easy to redirect that that um, supply to the to the south. I mean, they'd have to somehow um, like bulk order it from Canada. And well, how do you? Who exactly do you order from? Because you, if you order from the manufacturers, they're not, they're going to say no, thank you. They're going to ensure that the that the m- drugs are directed to um, domestic pharmacies. Um, the pharmacies aren't in a position to sell to the United States. Um, like, they don't have the authority, I don't think, to do that. I mean, there could be regulatory issues for pharmacies. Wholesalers may be tempted, but if the, if that happens, then the drug companies will di- sell directly to the pharmacies. Is that why uh, you think the kind of the uh, reaction to this in Canada, at least from officials, have been kind of kind of muted on this? Because they probably are thinking, like, what you're thinking is, this, this isn't going to work. Yeah, this is probably a flash in the pan. I, I, I just can't see how... The U.S. can turn to a country one-tenth of its size to satisfy its domestic drug consumption needs. I mean, it's simply, well, it's a pretty strange proposal. <laughs> That's, it sounds like you're being very honest about that. <laughs> well, I have some other words I could use, but this is a... That's probably the safest I, for radio. I have to be a little bit diplomatic here, but you know, it's not, it's just, I don't see how it could work. It's like, it's like Canada saying to, it's like Canadian policymakers Noticing that they pay low prices for drugs in, I don't know, Albania. Right. And then having some proposal to import 
large-scale drugs, large-scale amounts of drugs from Albania. It's simply not going to work. Well, Secretary Azar said yesterday the FDA is laying out a framework for the first time in its history for drug imports that will save money. So what you're saying then is they can lay out the framework all they want to, but there's really no place for them to order the drugs from in Canada. Well, they could attempt to go to the manufacturer, but the manufacturer, will I don't think, will be um, willing to sell to them. That's a good point. So they're saying, no, no. So who are they going to turn to? They're not going to cannibalize their own sales. Yeah, I mean, the companies will have no interest in doing this. I mean, they, you know, they have to um, raise money to keep their their operations going. They do it by charging different prices in different markets. I believe they charge higher prices in the States. Nobody knows for sure because no one knows the actual prices paid for drugs. But I believe they pay higher prices there. So, yeah, they, 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 would, they resist is attempt it, to effectively lower the price they get for drugs in the United States. Is, is. is there anything in the new trade agreement that would, you know, stop this from happening? Is there anything that would force us to do that? Not that I'm aware of. No, I, I don't think this would, to my mind, I, I'm not an expert. I don't quote me on this, but I don't think there's anything in the trade agreement which would compel um, drug companies in Canada to sell to uh, Americans. I just don't see it. Okay, so you would view this as a non-starter? I would, but you never know. There could be some sort of um, trick that they could use. I I don't know. I mean, if if they can force the companies to sell, yes, then maybe... (laughs) I just don't know how it would work, but yeah, I guess they could somehow compel them to sell the, the domestic, uh, the branch plants of the international drug companies, the ones that operate in Canada, if they could compel them, I, I just don't see how. All right, we'll see about that. Paul, thank you. Pleasure. That is Paul Grittendorf, the University of Toronto Associate Professor who researches the economics of the pharmaceutical industry. One of the big stories we've talked about in the last 24 hours has to do with what's been going on with provincial exams. Students graduating grade 12 or who just graduated a month or so ago had some big problems getting their accurate marks on those provincial exams. And it was a huge concern because the deadline to have their final transcripts into post-secondary institutions was today. Now, the Education Minister, Rob Fleming, issued a statement late yesterday uh, saying that the problem's been resolved. And he said he assured families that this will not have an impact on students' admissions to colleges and universities. They were blaming human error for the problem. Says it happened when data was being manually transferred between systems. I don't even know how in this day and age that's a thing, that you're manually transferring data between systems. But one parent that we spoke to says that she was only able to gain access to the transcripts in the past hour, like this morning, says she even stayed up until the early hours, like we're talking you know, six or seven hours ago, trying to log into the website and was having so much trouble. Once again, we asked for an interview with Minister Fleming on this to put that information out to parents and students. We were told he's not available. But the ombudsperson for BC has expressed some concern about this. So joining us now is Jay Chalk to talk more about it. Thank you very much for being here. Morning, Simi. Now, I know you issued a statement about this. Why did you decide to say something? Well, uh, I'm concerned about the error and and the potential impact that it could have on students and families uh, all across the province. It's a very stressful time for students uh, as they're trying to decide what's going to be happening happening for them uh, uh, in September. And so uh, my view is that the ministry has to deal with not just the technical issue, but also to... Uh, take steps to assess uh, in a proper way uh, whether there's been any individual impacts. Right. How did you feel about the amount of communication that was given out here? Well, uh, to be candid, it it sort of exploded uh, uh, just the other day uh, for all of us, I think, uh, uh, when uh, when, uh, we looked and uh, seen or have looked back and and tried to determine what has happened earlier. Uh, There was a notice that went up, uh, I believe, on Monday, uh, on uh, on the transcript request website, not a official release from the province or from the ministry, uh, no news release, but there was a notice on the transcript request website saying there was an anomaly. Uh, and so I think it was a bit gradual, uh, to be candid, And uh, uh, but uh, my real focus is uh, have people been impacted? And so that's really what we're going to be uh, really focused on. Uh, as for the communications questions, I suppose... Uh, uh, that's for other people to worry about. But my real, my real concern is that people have been adversely impacted and, and uh, uh, trying to determine whether or not that's the case. Yeah, what kind of questions then can the ombudsperson's office ask? 
So whenever somebody is uh, adversely affected by government, uh, people can uh, contact us and we investigate to determine uh, whether they've been treated fairly and reasonably. And we have investigative powers that uh, allow us to uh, look at records and speak with public servants uh, and uh, determine what happened. And if we believe that people have been treated unfairly, we can... uh, uh, issue recommendations that government take steps to uh, to make things right, and those recommendations are virtually always accepted because I think we're respected for our independent, impartial approach and uh, and principled, practical uh, recommendations that we make. So we've not yet uh, determined whether to start an investigation on this, but uh, we have contacted the ministry and asked uh, uh, for some preliminary information that will enable us to make a decision as to whether or not an investigation is required. When you heard about this, then, was it pretty clear to you that, all right, like, so we need to talk about this? Well, I think that, that anything that is so broadly affects uh, so many people uh, and so many young people who, uh, uh, any of us, uh, I'm a parent and uh, I've, had, I've had kids uh, uh, in that summer before first year of university trying to figure yeah. out uh, what, what's going on. And, you know, it's a pretty fluid time through the summer. Uh, and uh, and uh, to be that uh, you know that much up in the air is difficult, even in the best of times. Uh, and then to uh, uh, have this happen, I'm sure, was an additional stress for uh, for many young people and their parents. So, so uh, you know that's uh, that, that made it uh, I think important for us to uh, at least uh, uh, take this step of monitoring to determine what steps now the ministry is going to take to really satisfy itself that um, uh, that in fact nobody has been impacted with respect to say admission or bursaries or scholarships or any other uh, effect that might have occurred. Right. So is this just like an extra set of eyes to let the ministry know, hey, we're kind of watching to see how you guys are dealing with this? I guess that's one way you could describe us. Yes, an extra set of eyes. All right. Oh, I wait to hear more about that. Do you want to hear from people who were impacted by this? If anybody is affected, uh, um, they certainly can contact us. And our toll-free number is 1-800-567-3247. Or they can uh, contact us online at bcombudsperson.ca. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Amy. That is Jay Chalk, BC's ombudsperson. You heard him say there that if you were impacted by this, to contact their ombudsperson. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system office. He is going to be, the office is going to be kind of taking a look at this situation uh, to make sure that the ministry is, you know, dealing with this in as, as straightforward a way as possible. It is time now for Science with Simeon. I've got a cool one for you today. We're talking about something called exoplanets. Okay, I wasn't entirely sure what exoplanets were, but apparently that's a planet that is outside our solar system. And in the last couple of decades, we've discovered quite a few of these. Some of the biggest discoveries actually were just announced this week. New planets that are actually much closer to us than we realized. So how cool is this? Well, let's find out from one of the people who actually made this discovery. His name is Dr. Maximilian Gunther. He is the Torres Postdoctoral Fellow at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and I had a chance to chat with him earlier this morning. Well, Max, thank you so much for joining us today. First of all, tell me about the kind of work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure. So I'm a Torres Postdoctoral Fellow at MIT, and I'm working mainly with the TESS mission, that's the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. And TESS just recently completed its first year of science, um, actually just about two weeks ago. Um, So we scanned through the entire sky and we try to find new exoplanets, those are planets that orbit other stars outside of our solar system. Okay, and what did you find? So we had a really interesting discovery that we published uh, just this Monday, and it's the uh, object is called TOI-270. TOI stands for Test Object of Interest, and this is a very faint, cool star, and it's an M-dwarf star. That means it's much, much smaller than our sun. It's basically about 40% the size and mass, and uh, much cooler. And we found actually not just one or two, but actually three planets around there. And um, these are quite interesting ones because they're a so-called super Earth. That's a planet that's probably rocky, 
about um, the same size as Earth, but a little bit bigger. That's what the super stands for. So it doesn't have any special powers. It's just a bit bigger. <laughs> and the other two are TOI 270C and D. Um, these ones are so-called mini-Neptunes. So they actually look more like Neptune, the one that we have in our solar system, but they're only half its size. Uh, so Neptune is about four times the size of the Earth, and these ones are about twice the size of the Earth. So it's a category of planets that we don't have at all in our own solar system. And, and how far away um, are they? They're actually only 73 light years away. So it's one of the closest um, transiting planet systems like this, um, where we can actually measure the radii and the masses of all these planets and even um, study the atmospheres. So 73 light years sounds quite long, but in our uh, length scales, it's actually really close. And how habitable do these look? One you called a super Earth there, does that mean that it has a similar atmosphere? Yeah, that, that can be slightly misleading nomenclature. Um, thing is, when we say super Earth, we mainly define this by the size of the planet. So it's a little bit bigger than Earth. Um, this one, actually, we have some uh, the mass measurements coming up soon. Um, and we actually think this one is rocky. Uh, however, it's far from what we know on our Earth, because this planet is still really, really close to its star. It actually orbits on an orbit of around 3.4 days only while our Earth, as we all know, goes around in 365 days. Hmm. Now, that means this this planet is about 14 times closer to its star than Mercury is to our Sun. Of course, the star is a little bit uh, smaller, the star is a little bit cooler, um, so the temperatures are not quite as drastic as if we would be that close to our Sun. But still, it's about an oven-hot temperature, so it's about 490 Fahrenheit or 250 Celsius. So it's much too hot on the surface um, for any life as we know it to exist. But are there um, less? The two out. Sorry. I was going to say, are there lessons we can learn though from these planets? Like, does it tell us something about our solar system? Yeah, that's a great question, and that's actually what I find the most interesting in this system is that a we don't have these uh, mini Neptunes in our own solar system. So the question is, why do these so commonly exist around these really small stars? Because we find hundreds and hundreds of those around other stars. But the really interesting question is, what happens in the formation of these systems and what happened in the formation of our own solar system? Um, because A, why don't we have these planets? But also, these super-Earths or Earth-like planets, did they eventually, uh, did they possibly form in the same way as these mini-Neptunes formed? That means maybe in the past, millions and millions of years ago, they had a really thick gas envelope. But now, because they came too close to the star, um, the stellar winds and uh, potentially flares and activity of the star um, led to a photoevaporation of their atmosphere. So basically only the rocky core is left. And that's something that we really look forward to studying in this system. So this is an exceptional laboratory to test these things that we only have as theories right now. That's really a hot topic of research that just came up in the last few years. Hmm. And we have a couple of simulations, we have a couple of theories, but we have no laboratory to test this. And that's what we really look forward in the next two or three years we're going to probe the atmospheres of all these planets, and we're going to try to probe um, whether these maybe have formed from the same mechanism, and uh, or whether actually they might even invert some of our other understandings. So um, maybe they formed in different ways, and that's something that then lets us link back to our own solar system. Like, how did our own Earth form? Maybe our own Earth was also at some point covered in a really thick atmosphere that would make actually life inhabitable. Um, would make our surface inhabitable for life um, because under these really thick atmospheres, the pressure and the temperatures due to the greenhouse effects are so strong that uh, the surface would be much too hot and under right. much uh, pressure. So that's actually a really interesting question for the origin of life on our own Earth as well. I'm curious though, like we're got, we've obviously gotten so much better at um, finding these things. You said this is, this is relatively new um, instruments that you're using to do that. But how are we? How can you see and get all that information from something that is so far away? Yeah, um, it's actually basically a massive effort of that started um, tens of years ago with the engineers and the people who planned this, the people who developed the cameras, and to nowadays a team of over 100 people worldwide working on all this. But the basic technique is relatively simple. So what we do is we take a picture of the sky with our satellite, um, more or less every, uh, well, every couple of seconds, but we stack those up to like images of about two minutes. Um, so it's the same as if you're a hobby photographer or something, you would just point your DSLR camera or maybe even your smartphone up to the night sky and you just take a long exposure. So basically you see a big image of a lot of black 
and then a couple of white dots in there. And those white dots are the stars that we're looking at. And then we actually look at those every two minutes. So we take a picture every two minutes over an entire month, and then we switch to a new field of view. But all these images together, we look how bright is this little white dot of light over time. And if we, for example, look for planets, then we see, okay, um, we see 100% brightness all the time. And as a planet transits, that means it passes in front of its star, it is like a little blend. So it uh, hides a little bit of the stellar light. So this uh, brightness of that little white dot that we measure decreases a little bit by maybe only 1% or even less um, than that. So these planets here, for example, they're like 0.1%. And as we measure this in a periodic manner, so for example, in every three days, we find this little dip of light, mm -hmm. um, then we can calculate from that the size of the planet, and we can look at it with other instruments to measure its masses and find out about the molecules in its atmosphere. That is amazing. So what's next now? You found this is a pretty good discovery in the last couple of weeks, but what happens now? So the big thing about this system is we really want to nail down all these questions about the atmospheres. So we applied for time with the Hubble Space Telescope, and we will start some observations with that next year. Um, we have mass measurements with uh, Espresso and Harps uh, instruments, and we will soon go after it with the James Webb Space Telescope once it is launched in the next few years. And that is only one of these exoplanetary uh, systems, but TESS has actually set out to discover tens of thousands of exoplanets. Um, so it's a big and interesting field, and it's also going to be very, very exciting to see what other kind of interesting systems do we find? Maybe there's some planets that we don't even think about right now uh, that could exist. And the most exciting thing for observers and as well theorists is to see that the theories are broken. So we need to uh, find new theories about explaining new knowledge that we observationally gather. Like what do you mean? Uh, what theories really, are broken? Um, for example, in our own solar system, uh, we have this formation um, of the planets that we have the four small rocky planets really close to the sun. And then further out, we have the four massive gas planets. So Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, all about the same size, all rocky, all have very thin atmospheres. But then Uranus, Neptune, Jupiter, and Saturn are these huge gas planets. And the idea behind that is that the solar system formed like it is nowadays. Mm -hmm. And further away from the star, it's really cold. So you're beyond the so-called ice line. So you could um, glue things together with ices that form and you can build a really big uh, core really quickly, and that core gravitationally attracts all the gas around it. That's why these gas giants are out there. But then the very first exoplanet that was discovered in 1995 actually showed us that was a massive gas planet, exactly like our Jupiter, around a star that was very similar to the Sun, but it was on a, a few-day orbit, so it was extremely close, and that basically revolutionized the theories about our own solar system because... How can this happen? Like, it can't form in there. Right. And then many, many groups went off and, uh, and investigated that. And uh, the whole, like, migration theory mm -hmm. about exoplanet systems and our own solar system came along as a consequence. And so this is one example from the very beginning of our field, um, how these new observations can revolutionize our own thinking about our own solar system. You know, Max, as if these ideas aren't big enough and you're not busy enough at work, um, is it true that on the side you also do triathlons? <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Actually, uh, just just the last uh, month I finished two Tough Mudders. <laughs> you, what, how, how? How do you have so many goals and get so much done? <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's something you need if you work um, with data science and with these kind of astronomical timescales all the time you you want something as a balance in your life you want to feel grounded you want to exercise um to free your head again and i i just found for myself these kind of competitions are, are really driving me <laughs> no kidding listen max thank you so much for your time yeah thank you so much that's Dr. Maximilian Gunther, the Torres Potts Doctoral Fellow at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, telling us all about exoplanets and their recent discoveries. Some pretty cool stuff there on Science with Simi. Let's talk more now about a story you've been hearing about in the news today, and it is such a sad one. It's about the 89-year-old man who was attacked by a man with a machete 
in Courtney. It just happened yesterday morning, just after 4 a.m. Uh, the victim in this case was sitting inside his parked car. It's believed that he was delivering papers. He is recovering in hospital. Now, as you can imagine, those who know him and love him are shocked by what has happened. Uh, let's talk more about that now with somebody who does know him very well. It's Janelle Karatikis. Uh, she, her grandmother was Robert Plum's partner for 15 years before she passed away in May. Janelle, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. How is Robert doing? Um, considering everything that he's been through, he's in really good spirits. Um, he's such a trooper. I look up to him so much. Um, he's laughing and joking. Um, he's probably going to lose the vision in his left eye completely. And you know what? It doesn't even seem to phase him. He's just so thankful to still be alive. Can you tell us what happened or what has he told you about what happened? Uh, he was delivering papers, um, which him and my grandma did for years um, together, and he still helps um, his daughter-in-law. Um, it's something that he insists on doing. It helps him keep his independence, and he just loves to give back to the community. Um, he said today he's never, ever felt unsafe before. Um, he had just delivered a newspaper to a local business and was walking back to his car, and a guy came up on a bike and said, do you have a cigarette? And Bob said, no, as he, I haven't smoked since 1975, as he was walking into his car um, and thankfully Bob was mostly in his car because if he hadn't have been this could have been a lot worse um, and all of a sudden he got hit over the head with the intention obviously to knock him out but it didn't oh. knock him out so once he wasn't knocked out um, the guy just started slashing at his face um, he probably got eight slashes across his face um, with this machete which Bob said was about 16 inches long oh my goodness and he knew he knew he had to fight for his life and he grabbed onto the blade of the machete and he held on with dear life, and he's got quite a few cuts on his hand, um, but he wouldn't let go, and that obviously deterred the guy, because once the guy finally did get the machete back from him, he took off, because a few minutes had passed by then, and Bob thinks that he was worried about, um, you know, someone showing right. up at that point, because it had been going on for about 10 to 15 minutes. Um, did somebody show up at that point? Like, who helped Bob? No, no, <laughs> he drove himself to the RCMP. Oh, you're kidding um, me. He was just in shock and the adrenaline. He said he tried to use his cell phone to call 911, but there was so much blood that he couldn't see. Um, and as soon as he was flashed across the face and it, it, it got his eye, um, he said everything went black in that eye. Um, and he hasn't seen anything through that eye since. So with um, just nobody being on the road at that time of the morning, he got himself to the RCMP office and was able to push the button and they were there within a few minutes to help him and he has nothing but good things to say about the care that they provided for him he sounds like he is just an amazingly positive person he's such a positive person he would give his shirt off his back to a homeless person he said nothing but compassion for them over the years and he's just shocked that this would even happen in the Comox Valley like nobody would have ever expected this for someone to do such an action to a human being, let alone an 89-year-old, is just sickening. And do we know anything about the investigation at this point? Like, what have police told you? Uh, we haven't talked to them. They're supposed to contact Bob today. So we're just praying and hoping that they're working hard on this investigation and can catch the person who did this. That's all we hope for. So it is a person on a bike. Do we know anything about the description or anything like that? Has Bob been um, able Bob to talk about that? Yeah, he said that he thought he had a toque on, um, he carried a machete, he was on a bicycle which looked dark colored, he thought it was a younger guy, probably in his 20s, um, with wavy hair. Um, he was able to give a good description to the RCMP before they transferred him to the hospital yesterday morning. That's just a very good description as well. So yeah. I saw some of the pictures as well that you posted online. Like it is, Bob just, he looks like he's in rough shape, but it's amazing that yeah. he's like talking and he... And sounds, he's laughing and yeah. joking and... Yeah, so he's, you know, he's in great spirits considering. I don't know that I could be in that great of spirits. Um, his pain is increased today, obviously, because he's feeling the bump on his head now today and whatnot. But um, he's got a ton of family and friends that are visiting him and bringing him things. And So he's got he's lots got a lot of company of in the hospital. Lots of support. Yeah, he's got the heart of gold. He would... So it's 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 great to see the support that he's getting. Yeah, and It'll I know help that him heal. you've got a GoFundMe going here as well to help him out because he's not going to be able to go back to work anytime soon, is he? No, and he he didn't do the papers for money. He just did it to help um, family, um, to help my aunt, um, and it's just something he enjoyed do, doing. But you know, he could definitely use the money and the help. You know, he's an eighty nine year old man that lives on his own. He recently lost my grandma. 
Um, he's on a special diet, that, so he can't take, like, he can't accept meals from people because he's got an esophageal problem. So we just figured that's the best way that people could help because we had such a response over the Facebook post that my brother did that that's the only way we can think, you know, like money can help him heal mentally and physically. Um, I put the original goal at $2,000 and within an hour it was over 3000 So it's been so overwhelming. And after such a tragic event of inhumanity, it's nice to see that strangers are still there, like people are still caring and compassionate and giving back to him. Oh, actually, um, I can update you right now. You, you, it's 13450 <laughs> and you'd set the goal at 10000 Yeah, I, I, have to, yes, I had so many messages last night saying, up it, up it. So I put it at 10 and you know what, like whatever he may not need or doesn't use, it'll all go to charity, but he can use probably every penny of it. Um, and it's just amazing that it just keeps growing. It just, you know, our hearts are, we're so thankful and he's so thankful. He was teary this morning when we told him about all the love and support that he's getting. It must've been a rough couple of months for him because I understand your, your grandmother passed away in May. I'm so sorry about that. Yeah. She's had dementia for about five to seven years. Um, and he helped care for her. Um, he would take her out three days a week and go for drives and go for coffee. And she adored him. Um, so yeah, it's been a rough few months and we, he's been our only grandfather figure in our life. We, um, both of our biological grandfathers passed away one before any of us grandkids came along and a few of us were babies when our other grandpa passed away. So he's been our only grandfather figure and he's taken us in like his own family and we love and adore him. And he's, been nothing but good to us since day one well we're sending good thoughts and janelle we hope the best for bob thank you so much we appreciate all the love and support and we just encourage anyone with any tips to go to the rcmp because justice is really what we want from all this all right we'll do that thank you janelle thank you thank Th- you that's janelle karatikis uh, her and, and of course she's speaking on behalf of bob bob plum who is recovering in hospital the 89 year old man who was attacked by a man with a machete. And this happened yesterday morning at about 4.15 a.m. as Bob Plum was delivering papers. 89 years old, still delivering papers. And as you heard Janelle say, he just liked to continue to you know keep himself busy and give back to the community and be out and about. Uh, now the family has kind of detailed the journey ahead of him on Facebook. You see some of the pictures of Bob and it is just awful. You know, earlier in the show, we spoke to a scientist who works for MIT and he discovers exoplanets and he had just done, like, discovered these exoplanets 73 light years away and it was this amazing discovery. And on the side, he was telling me he does triathlons and he competes like in Ironman competitions. And I said, why do you do that? And he said he has to. It clears his head and just helps him just concentrate more and think more clearly. So guess what? You can do that too. We actually have a great event for you to learn about where you could do the exact same thing and maybe have a bit of a challenge and do it all for a good cause. Uh, it's a it's called Tour de Fox. And it's to help raise money to support research into Parkinson's disease. To talk more about this, we're joined now by Stephanie Paddock, who is the Director of Community Events for the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, thanks for having us. Oh, I'm so thrilled to do this. We also have Jonathan Mackin with us here in studio. Uh, he is someone who lives here locally. You have Parkinson's and you are, you've participated in the past in the Tour de Fox, right? Yes, I've, I've been there every year since I came here. Um, and it's, it's a great event. Okay, well, tell me all about this, Stephanie. What is the Tour de Fox? Sure. So the Tour de Fox is a cycling series. We have multiple locations in Canada and in the U.S., and it's really a way to get the Parkinson's community, people living with PD, supporters, friends, family, out for a fun day on your bike. We offer um, a a variety of different um, ride distances. Our, Our event that will be in Port Coquitlam on August 17th will have four different distances for people to choose from, from 15K up to 96K for more experienced riders. Um, And it's really an an event to get the community out. They're um, inspiring fundraising. Um, We are um, really geared up to have about 200 participants this year um, and are looking to fundraise about $100,000 for research. Well, I'm guessing from what I have learned about Jonathan in the short time that I have been talking here with him, is it, are you going for the 96K on this, Jonathan? I always go long. (laughs) (laughs) And how is it? How active are you? I'm pretty active. I, I box regularly. I ride my bike. I've got my bike on a trainer most nights and riding at night. Um, anything possible. I walk 
quite a long distance, about eight miles a day. So it's a uh, eight miles a day. Yeah. How many steps are you getting? Oh, it's thirty, forty thousand. What yeah. a day! Yes. When were you first diagnosed with Parkinson's? I was diagnosed in October 2012 when I was 36. Um, it was uh, took about six years for them to come up with the diagnosis. Uh, and why, do you, why was that? I, I looked like a normal, active 30-year-old, and, and it, things were just changing on me, and then they, uh, it, was, it was hard for them to diagnose it. Diagnosis is, is a matter of a, a, a test where they're, they're testing your, your agility, your movements, and all that. Right. It's not a blood test. There's no actual um, tests for it right. other than the, the going to your No laboratory disorders. test or exactly. something like that. Yeah. And, and so it took quite a while for them to shift me from one specialist to another specialist to get to the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. And why do you think that was? Was it because they thought, oh, well, you're so active, everything seems fine? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I look fine from the outside. It's just I could feel changes. I could, I could feel the tremor. Talk to me about that. What did you feel on the inside? That's important for people to know, right? Yes, it, it, it's. I could feel I was slowing down. There was fatigue. I, I went from playing ultimate for three hours, a couple times a week, to not being able to move. I was so exhausted. I, I had this tremor that wouldn't go away, and I was starting to drag one of my legs. So it was. It it got to a point where I knew there was something going wrong, but. If, my mom said if you looked at me that she couldn't see any any difference other than my facial expression was starting right. to change. So. But yet here you are now, that was 2012, you're seven years later and you're doing thirty to 40,000 steps a day. How do you make yourself do it? it? It's the exercise. It's like an extra boost of medication. It's it's It pushes me to keep going. And can you notice the difference that exercise makes? I definitely can. I, I Every time I wake up in the morning, it's I, I just feel like getting going just because it's just, just that extra push and it's... It, it, it's excellent. Stephanie, is that something new that we're learning about Parkinson's, right? It's not a matter of resting your muscles. It's a matter of using your muscles. Yeah. So one thing to, to note back to what Jonathan said is that there is no clear biomarker or biological test for Parkinson's at this point. So um, that is definitely why research is so, so important. Um, but we have a saying that if you've met one person with Parkinson's, you've met one person with Parkinson's because symptoms um, vary from one person to the next and in some cases from one hour to the next in the same person. So there are, you know, a variety of symptoms from, you know, cognitive to tremor to balance and gait, and it's different in every person. But um, one thing that we definitely know and what Jonathan has hit on so, so importantly is that Exercise is one of the best medicines. Um, staying active, um, keeping the body moving, it does make almost like a, a fake dopamine response in the brain, and it really does help. And, and we see that um, whether people get out and ride their bike or walk or do boxing classes, um, all activity, whatever that activity is for you, um, it's, it's finding something that you like, finding something that you enjoy and that you'll get out there and you'll do every day. Now, Jonathan, you were talking about that, how there's been once or twice when you haven't been able to exercise as often as you would like, and you felt it. Yes, I've, I felt the change. I felt the degradation from being on this good on state to slowly going off. And it's and the medication, while it helps, I could still see more of the symptoms coming out. And when it comes to the medication, like Parkinson's research seems like they need they need to move forward here, right? Because the drugs you said are, are old. The drugs that I currently take are... are um, 65-year-old technology, technology. There's stuff coming out that is is newer, and that's that's why research is so important. And getting that out is, is it would be great for us. So. Yeah, no yeah. kidding, Stephanie. Why is that? Why is up until now? It seems like Parkinson's research hasn't been developing new drugs. So the the gold standard drug, which is levodopa, as Jonathan said, um, came out you know years ago, and the the real. The real takeaway is that research is hard and research is expensive. And, um, you know, I think the Fox Foundation to date has, has funded over $850 million in research and, and to some that's still kind of a drop in the bucket. And so, um, you know, our main goal is to continue um, funding research and, and really find that cure and, and help close our doors. Um, you know, again, we're looking for kind of a, a variety of different ways to get to that cure, whether it is finding a biological marker, um, finding better treatments for people living with Parkinson's today, or um, some, some type of 
um, disease-modifying um, treatment that may stop, slow, or reverse the progression of the disease. Right. How common is Parkinson's? How many people have it? So about 6 million people worldwide are living with Parkinson's today, and um, about 50 to 60,000 new cases are diagnosed every year. Um, that is about one in 100 people over the age of 60. And um, while the disease definitely is um, known as a you know older person's disease, as Jonathan shows that there is also young onset um, Parkinson's for you know in people where it has started and and um, symptoms have been shown much earlier in life. Right. That's scary, Jonathan. You were only 36. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Um, for me, it was, I, I mean, I was at my movement disorder specialist the day I got diagnosed, and I, I sat there and I thought I could wallow in this or I can get up and move. I found an app on my phone that could count steps and, and also donated to, uh, to Michael J. Fox Foundation. Put that on my phone. The next day, I walked five miles. You, and I just you're that going. guy. Yeah. You are that kind of a positive guy. Yeah, sounds like you're a lot like Michael J. Fox. Um, Stephanie, it sounds the Michael J. Fox Foundation has been doing incredible work here. Thank you. Yes, and and one thing that I'll I'll also um, kind of note to Jonathan's participation participation in this ride and also his participation just in the in the foundation in general, he has made that decision to get involved, and we definitely see that both the Tour de Fox series, also our grassroots community fundraising program, Team Fox, which allows people to do whatever they're passionate about and turn it into a fundraiser. Um, also, people that are signing up and getting involved in research, um, participating in clinical trials, whatever that involvement is, building that community is so, so important and really keeps people motivated and encouraged to to continue on and and to live with this new normal. And so, you know, we we applaud Jonathan. We love Jonathan and everything that he does for the Fox Foundation. And, um, you know, he obviously seems to get a lot out of exercise, and we also get a lot out of him being part of our community. Jonathan, are you positive? Are you positive about moving forward with this? Yeah, I've, I've got hope. I'm, there's most days I'm positive. There's always a one bad day somewhere stuck in there. But otherwise, I'm I'm a very positive person. I'm, I'm and I'm hopeful that the Michael J. Fox Foundation is going to find some treatments and a cure. And and down the road, Parkinson's will no longer exist. As Stephanie, you just said you they hope to close their doors one day because they're not needed anymore, right? Yes, I mean we all we all joke, but it's a reality here that we're all looking forward to unemployment. So <laughs> we're uh, we're ready for those days where we can close our doors for sure. All right. Well, how can people help out? The Tour de Fox is coming up on August the seventeenth. If people want to participate, if they want to help out, what do they need to know? Definitely. So all ages, all abilities. People can go to tourdefox.org/slash/pacific-northwest. They can register to ride. They can register to volunteer. They can donate to a friend or family member who's already participating. And we'll also be doing a post-ride party at the Me and Ed's Pizza Parlor in Port Coquitlam from 12 to 3.30. We encourage people to come out. Um, It'll be a great day on your bike, afterwards celebrating, and we're just really looking forward to it. Uh, Rain or shine, they're going to be doing this. Jonathan's going to be there. You're doing the 96K, I take it? That's the goal, yes. Do you have a time that you want to finish that in? Not exactly, no. I just just want to finish. That's all I'm I'm looking for ever is marathons, half marathons, and the rides. Let's just finish it and have fun. Jonathan, you're amazing. Thank you so much for being on our show today. We appreciate that. Stephanie, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. That's Stephanie Paddock, the Director of Community Events for the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. Uh, Check out their website for more information on this. And Jonathan Mackin was with us. He has Parkinson's and will be participating in the Tour de Fox as well. For more information, visit tourdefox.org slash Pacific Northwest. And they hope to see you there in Port Coquitlam. So when I was about five years old, I saw the movie Jaws. I know, right? Five years old. But it was the 70s. So who worried about the kids in those days? In hindsight, of course, who would let their five-year-old see Jaws? But, you know, that's the way it was. It did spark a lifelong fear of, and a fascination of, I have to admit, great white sharks. And I know I'm not the only one who shares that. Heck, I think I watched five shows on Discovery last week because it was Shark Week. Who doesn't watch? Rob Riggle, 
the comedian, I love Rob Riggle, the actor, the comedian, was actually hosting a show during Shark Week. I think a lot of us have that fascination. Well, in the last few years, there's also been a study about the presence of great whites off the coast of Nova Scotia. That is farther north than they had been seen before. And so now researchers, when they first came to Nova Scotia, it was last fall. They were tagging great whites to see their kind of movement in Canadian waters. And when they came last fall, they were able to attach those satellite transmitters to the fins of six great whites. That's a lot, right? And so then those great whites headed south for the winter. But now four of those sharks have returned to Canadian waters. So our contributor, Claire Allen, has this report on great whites in Canadian waters. When you think of great white sharks, you probably think about them swimming off the coast of Hawaii or South Africa. But what if I were to tell you that white sharks have been found to be spending more time in Canadian waters? Chris Fisher is the founding chairman and expedition leader with OSEARCH, a data-centric ocean research group, and he spoke with me about his organization's 2018 expedition when they realized that white sharks were in the waters off Nova Scotia. In March of 2017, off the coast of the Carolinas, we tagged a male white shark named Hilton, a mature male white shark. And he proceeded that following summer to not go to Massachusetts, but to go to Nova Scotia. And he lived in Nova Scotia in the Lunenburg area for some period of time. And so because he spent so much time there, and we believe the sharks are gathering in the fall and early winter to mate, and he was a mature male, we felt like, man, there must be other sharks up there because these sharks aren't lost. They know where they're going and they know when to be there. And so that led us to a 20. 18 expedition in September up in Nova Scotia, which was one of the most spectacular first expeditions we've ever had in a region where we went up there. We actually saw 11 sharks. We captured seven. We tagged six. And it's really just beginning to open up the whole great white shark puzzle in the Canadian Atlantic. And actually, I'm starting to believe that Nova Scotia and that region might be the center of the whole North Atlantic white shark puzzle. Chris and his team observed the sharks they tagged for the next year. And last July, the southern tip of Nova Scotia began to light up again with shark activity. Four of the six white sharks that Osearch had tagged in 2018 have returned to the waters off of Nova Scotia. And they are some big sharks. Well, you have Luna. She's a mature 15-foot female. She's a big, mature animal. And then you have Hal, who's a big, mature male. You know, he's not huge. He's like 13 feet, but he is sexually mature and ready to mate. And then you have Jane, who's back up there, who's a sub-adult female, a little over 10 feet long. Then you have Cabot, a sub-adult male, just short of 10 feet. So what are these sharks doing in these waters? Chris says while a lot of the sharks' activities remain a mystery, they know that the white sharks are for sure doing one thing. The most important thing they're doing is they're balancing the ocean. Like for all the people who live in that region, when you have a lot of white sharks, right, they prevent the seals from wiping out your cod and your salmon and your lobster. Uh, because they, we know that when white sharks are present, seals spend one-fourth of the time in the water foraging they do than when seals are not present. When you lose these big white sharks, the seals run amok and they wipe out the commercial and recreational fisheries. And then there's no food for our kids in the future. So it's a good thing because it's going to make the ocean much more abundant. However, his team still has some major questions. One of the big questions that we need to answer is where is the Canadian white shark giving birth? Because in reality, you know, you don't get these big balance keepers unless the sharks succeed in the nursery. And they can grow up and become the balance keepers we need them to. So we know we've tagged some sharks in mass. They led us to the New York, New Jersey bite, that southern shore of Long Island, and we found uh, the young of the year sharks there. So that's a birthing area. That's where they live the first year, the first six months of their life before they migrate south. And the big question is, is, is the Canadian white shark also dropping off their pups on the south shore of Long Island, or do they have a separate birthing area uh, of which yet we haven't identified? And the, and the way to identify that is to spend more time in Nova Scotia tag more big mature females and then let those females lead us to their birthing areas. So that's still an unknown. But if we get it right in Nova Scotia and we find out where those females are given birth and then we look after that nursery, 
all of our kids are going to eat fish and our commercial and recreational fisheries will thrive. O-Search's data is amazing because it's the first time white sharks have been tagged in Canadian waters. So what does this tell us about the importance of Canada's maritimes for the North Atlantic white shark population? This means that they are as important as any other place in the entire North Atlantic, right? If we succeed with the white sharks in the Nova Scotian and and Atlantic Canada region, um, then we're going to have sharks swimming around keeping the second tier of the food chain in check, you know, preventing the squid from exploding and wiping out all the baby tuna and baby mahi and baby billfish and baby snapper and everything else. They'll prevent the seals from wiping out the salmon and the cod and the lobster. They'll prevent the rays from wiping out all our shellfish. So if we win in Nova Scotia, if we succeed there with the white shark, then the entire North Atlantic will be abundant. For residents in Nova Scotia, it might be alarming to know that some massive white sharks are swimming in their waters. But Chris says that people should not be alarmed. We're all swimming with white sharks all the time. I mean, when you see these tracks, look at where these sharks are. I mean, one of the things is they're much more coastal than we thought. A lot of people used to think, oh, the big sharks just live way offshore. But they're super coastal. They're coming up the rivers when there's bait runs. They're on the beaches when there's fish migrations. They're on the seals that are on the beaches. We've all been swimming with white sharks our entire life. Nothing's changed. We just know now. If you want to follow the shark activity off Nova Scotia and around the world, visit osearch.org. That's O-C-E-A-R-C-H. For AM980 CKNW, I'm Claire Allen. That is so fascinating, isn't it? Oh, so great.